The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Which takes us to our time together in God's Word. We will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 today. We'll finish chapter 5. Those of you who haven't been with us, just so you know, we've been going through the book of Corinthians in the New Testament, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he started, planted, pastored there for about a year and a half, and then and was away, and then it developed troubles, and he heard about it, and so he needed to give attention to it as the pastor, but also as an apostle of the early church. So he writes this very long letter in our English Bible of 16 chapters, dealing with this congregation of Christians in a Greek and Roman culture, very sinful culture in which they lived, and so a lot of the problems of secular society were trickling into their local congregation. And Paul had to address those specifically issue by issue. Probably one of the worst problems they were having was division in the church, little cliques and attitudes towards one another, not being loving, not being unified in Christ's likeness. And so Paul spent the first four chapters addressing division in the local church. And the root of the problem was they had the wrong attitude. They were arrogant. He said it many times. They're arrogant. They are puffed up. They think they know everything. They look down their nose at everybody else, including the Apostle Paul. And he says later on in this epistle that knowledge or just raw data and information, when you keep taking it in, you think you get smart. You think you're smarter than everybody else. And as a result, you become inflated, big-headed, puffed up. And you think you're on top of the world and you know more than everybody else. And so you develop a critical and judgmental spirit. And also one of the themes that Paul was getting at is that when a person becomes uh, big-headed, inflated with self-confidence, thinking that they are highly intelligent and others are not, when you become puffed up, you become blind. You become actually woefully blind through everything that's going on around you. You become oblivious to the world around you because a person like this, like many of the Corinthians, you're so self-focused. It's all about you. You're me-centered. And you're just looking at self and how much you know and how much you are superior to everybody else. So you're not looking around you. You don't have a broad perspective. You become blind to everything else going on around you. That was true of the Corinthians. They were so inflated with self-confidence and false knowledge. They became oblivious to everything else going on around them in their immediate vicinity in their local church to the point there were gross and blatant sins going on and they refused to recognize it or deal with it as they should as Christians in God's church. And so that transitions us from the first four chapters now to chapters five and beyond. And so we were introduced chapter five last week of a gross sin that was going on in their congregation that had been going on publicly for quite some time now that everybody knew about it, even people hundreds of miles away knew about it. It was an egregious sin of incest being tolerated by the church that was going on with at least one man who was a member of the Corinthian church, a professing Christian. And instead of being disciplined and dealt with and rebuked and removed and isolated, he was being allowed to continue in this gross, blatant, open, public sin. And the rest of the Corinthians were tolerating it and not doing anything about it taking no action as they should. And then Paul said, we addressed this last week, that they should have been mourning and weeping over this sin because this kind of sin just grieves the heart of God. And if you're a Christian, you should have the heart of God and of Christ. You should grieve over sin, whether it's in your own life or someone else's life that you care about. 
And Paul says, man, you're, I can't believe you're not mourning and weeping over this. I can't believe that you're tolerating this. I can't believe that there's public knowledge about this. I can't believe that you remain puffed up and arrogant about how about great and spiritual you are, despite the fact that this is going on, and this is really the trademark and the reputation of your church in your society, in the culture, and abroad. It's not how smart you are. It's how tolerant you are of gross and egregious sin, the kind of sin that pagans won't even tolerate. That's Paul's argument in the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians. So that's what we covered last week. So when a Christian becomes puffed up with knowledge, arrogance, they become a know-it-all, they become blind things around them and so uh, we will finish chapter 5 and we'll pick up where we left off last week verses 9 through 13 so follow along with me as I just summarized what Paul said in the first eight verses that one of your members a man the church of Corinth is involved in a gross incestuous relationship with his stepmother everybody knows about it and you have refused to do anything about it and you remain cocky in your attitude about everything else. So he picks up from that in verse 9. And he said several times, uh, three or four different times, he said, remove that person from you. Remove that compromiser from you. Remove that immoral person member from you. Because if you don't, their behavior will spread like cancer and infect many other people in your congregation. You've got to deal quickly and severely with this sin, and they weren't. And so in verse 9, I'll read 9 through 13. Paul continues his argument and exhortation to the Corinthians. Verse 9, he says, I wrote you in my letter. I wrote you my, that was a previous letter that he had written before he wrote 1 Corinthians. We'll talk about that. I wrote you in my previous letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So let's look at Paul's argument. I called this sermon, Judging Believers and Unbelievers. Talked a little bit about judging last week. Couldn't be exhaustive about it. Should we judge as Christians? And if so, when? And if so, how? And if so, who do we judge? All of those questions are not answered exhaustively in this passage, but Paul does deal with a couple of very specific issues with respect to judging. So he's telling the Corinthians as a whole, here's here's one way you should judge believers in the church, and here's an attitude you should have about judgment towards unbelievers who aren't in your church. So I called this sermon Judging Believers and Unbelievers. There's really three main points that I came up with, and then I added another one to bring out closure from other teachings in Scripture, which makes point number four. So let's go ahead and look at these uh, three points plus our conclusion in verses 9 through 13. It's pretty straightforward and real simple. Paul is dealing with an, an issue of discipline in the church, church discipline. 
uh, Grace Bible Fellowship, when the church started seven plus years ago and before it started as we were praying and thinking and searching the scriptures and asking for God's leading, one of the main questions was what constitutes or makes a biblical church, a healthy church. Not a perfect church, a healthy, obedient church. There are, there are no perfect churches. If you're looking for the perfect church, you will not find it. And it, you know, if, when you find it, you go there, you'll mess it up, they like to say. Uh, but what constitutes a biblical and healthy church? And so we came up with, it's not a magic formula, we just came up with what we call 20 distinctives. Here are 20 things that we think came from Scripture that will kind of drive how we do ministry here at Grace Bible Fellowship so that people, when they come here, visit, inquire, or consider membership, here are the 20 distinctives that we think flow right out of Scripture. Here is what we are committed to. So this week I actually looked at the 20 distinctives again Seven and a half years later, after writing those, thinking, yeah, we're still committed to them. Do we do them perfectly? No, but we are still committed. These are still our, our priorities. And like I said, they flow right out of Scripture. Uh, biblical preaching, or what I call expository preaching is one of them. Fellowship. Another one is uh, people come before programs. We are committed to that here at GBF. Uh, prayer at all levels, basic biblical distinctives. Uh, elder shepherding, we believe there needs to be a plurality of elders. That's God's model. So these are some of the distinctives. And on there also is just church discipline. That's one of the distinctives. Many well-known pastors um, who practice church discipline today, who have been around for decades, whether it's Chuck Swindoll or John MacArthur or John Piper, these men have been around pastoring for 40-plus years. They can testify that when they were shepherding and pastoring, pastoring in the late 60s, early 70s, there were very few churches that practiced church discipline. As a matter of fact, they would say they couldn't even think or name a church that practiced church discipline. It just wasn't being done. And there are reasons for that. But this, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is a clear biblical mandate calling all churches, not just Corinth, to implement, practice, in a regular, ongoing basis, uh, church discipline in the local church. It is not just Paul practicing and commanding what to do regarding church discipline. Actually, Paul is putting the onus on the local congregation. Hey, that is your church. It's where your people are. It is in, quote, your midst. God has given you the authority through the Lord Jesus Christ to do church discipline. You collectively need to do church discipline. That is his argument. And this is true of every church. That is a mark of a healthy church. That's a mark of an obedient church. And that was one of the 20 distinctives of our church. We are committed to church discipline here at Grace Bible Fellowship. Now, discipline, by discipline, I mean biblical discipline, which from the few passages that talk about it very specifically, it has to do with confronting sin, calling the sinner to repentance, with the goal of getting the sinner to repent and acknowledge what they did is wrong, to be reconciled in their relationship with God. And also to give God glory and to walk in holiness if they are confessing, professing Christian. God has called the Christian to be holy for he is holy. That is just basic to the Christian life. And when Christians get out of kilter or engaged in sin and it becomes a little bit of a pattern in their life, it needs to be exposed, confronted, they need to be called to repentance. And so the goal of church discipline is to confront the sinner, expose the sin, woo them, call them to repentance, 
be reconciled with God, to give him the glory, and also, very important, to protect the community and the body of believers. Church discipline protects other people. Now, Hebrews 12 is very honest because it says, discipline, when it is happening, it is not uh, fun, it is not pleasant. It's, it's sad. It's a sad and sorrowful occasion anytime church discipline needs to be implemented. Nobody likes it. But it needs to be done. So that's the argument of Hebrews 12. Nobody likes it. It is unpleasant. As a matter of fact, it says it is painful. It's emotionally painful. It is socially painful. Uh, it's, it's painful across the board. It is draining, but it's a reality. It needs to be done. It's what God requires. It is for the good of the church. It is good for the glory and the honor of God himself. And it is good also for the sinner, whether they realize it or not. So Hebrews 12 speaks to that. Jesus says discipline is always an act of love, or it should be. That's the motivation of it. Uh, the Lord Jesus himself said it in Revelation chapter 2 to the churches there. He rebuked every one of the churches of the seven churches and disciplined them verbally and made threats. If you don't repent, I am going to come to you and I am going to lay you down on your backside and I am going to cause you to be sick. And if you don't repent, I will kill you. Uh, Jesus said to a certain person in that church in Revelation chapter 2, unless you repent. So that is harsh. That is severe. But Jesus said in the next chapter, as he was rebuking another sinning Christian in a church, he said, those whom I love, I chasten and discipline. So the motivation is out of a heart of love. The good of the sinner, the preservation of truth, the good of the community, the glory of God. So that's a little background on church discipline and why it is so important. And we can't have a lopsided, distorted view of God. God is a God of love. God is love, says Scripture, but God is also a consuming fire says Hebrews 12. God is light, and in Him there is no sin or darkness at all, and He can't even tolerate it. So God is love, and at the same time, God is holy, and God must punish sin because He can't tolerate sin. And the ways that God deals with sin is through discipline. Uh, God has called the church to implement church discipline in an ongoing manner to give maintenance and health to the church. But God Himself has initiated discipline all throughout history. Let me give you a couple of uh, reminders from the Old Testament starting if you have a Bible and you want to go to Psalm 5 go there and then be ready to go to 2 Samuel verse 6 because I think that's worth looking at before we jump back into 1 Corinthians 5 I want to read Psalm 5 a couple of verses just to remind you of the character of God the nature of God and his attitude towards sin unrepentant sin blatant defiant sin David writes this inspired prayer to God in Psalm 5, starting at verse 4. And as he prays and writes to God, he says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Now Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, called this man's act of incest wickedness. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. God won't tolerate it. Zero tolerance. 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, That's interesting. He talks about wickedness, evil, sin, and the epitome of sin uh, isn't murder in verse 5. It's boasting. A prideful spirit. Uh, Proverbs says God hates a prideful spirit. God opposes the proud. That's his example in verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. That is uh, a heinous, grotesque sin in the eyes of God. Pride. 
And get this, verse 5, one of the strongest statements in the entire Bible. God, you hate all who do iniquity. That's troubling. Wow, how do you reconcile that with God so loved the world? God hates sin. Verse 6, you destroy those who speak falsehood, who lie. He hates lying. The Lord Yahweh abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. So uh, bloodshed and deceit, that's murder all the way down to the littlest white lie. That's the whole spectrum of sin. God hates it all. Every uh, every sin warrants the death penalty. Uh, That's what Scripture says. Now go to 2 Samuel in your Old Testament. And here's an example of God implementing church, or or not church discipline, but discipline on the community of believers himself. This is in the days of King David when he just was anointed and recognized as the king of Israel, the second king of Israel. This was before the temple was built. So they had the Ark of the Covenant that had the Ten Commandments in it, and the very presence of God somehow uh, mysteriously, miraculously was with the Ark of the Covenant. And God said, when you carry the Ark of the Covenant around, it needs to be done in a certain way on a certain kind of right poles and carried by the right people and the right number of people and you better not violate the procedure because everything about the ark of the covenant and the implements that were going to be put in the tabernacle or the temple represented god and his sanctuary down to the last detail so it needed to be done with precision in obedience to what god required there was a protocol to be followed they knew this and they violated here in Second Samuel chapter 6, uh, verse uh, 2. Oh, we'll go to verse 3. Here's David leading the men of Israel in worship. Uh, actually, verse 2, And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, Okay, the ark of the covenant. This has got the Ten Commandments in it and Aaron's rod and whatever else is in there. It's to be carried very procedurally. David wanted to bring the ark, bring it up from there. The ark of God, which is called by the name of God, the very name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. So they placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, these are two men that are designated at this point to carry the ark. So apparently one guy's in the front carrying it, the other guy's in the back Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart, so they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, and so they start walking along the rocky roads of uh, the Palestinian terrain, and they're walking along, and who knows how long they're walking, but they're carrying the ark of God. His very presence is there, and they're walking ahead of the ark. Verse 5, they brought the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Verse 5, Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals, and they're singing and praising God and having a worship service while the ark is being carried kind of like in a parade down the street. Verse 6, And then the parade gets interrupted. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah, who's around near the ark, reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen nearly upset it. So there's oxen pulling the cart, this new cart that they put the ark on, and then apparently it hits a bump in the road, and the, the ark of God uh, is beginning to tip, and it looks like it's going to fall. And so Uzzah, who's been guarded to go with the ark, reaches out, and he doesn't want the ark of God to fall and hit the ground, which you would think, well, that was good of him that he was concerned. So Uzzah goes to grab the ark and stabilize it and catch it, 
so that it doesn't fall. And verse 6 says, uh, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God, took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. Verse 7, And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. God wasn't happy Uzzah did that. God was mad Uzzah did that. Well, that's kind of strange. God was so mad, it says, that God struck Ezra dead. Right there on the spot for his irreverence. In other words, he did something he shouldn't have done. He touched the ark of God the wrong way. It says God got angry and killed Uzzah on the spot. And he died there by the ark of God. David's reaction, David was very upset. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. David thought this was an injustice. What in the world are you doing, God? What are you doing? You killed Uzzah, who was trying to save your cart? So David starts questioning the, God's character for what he did. David is a man of God. David loves God. But here's his knee-jerk reaction, which is actually illegitimate. You don't question God. God never sins. God is never wrong. So first, David gets angry at the Lord, and then probably a little time goes by and he thinks about it and is like, whoa, who am I arguing with? The creator of the universe, the judge of all souls. That was inappropriate. And he loved God. So then in verse 9 it says, so David was afraid. So his anger turned into fear, probably a holy, reverent fear. But I wanted to point that out, that here's an example. Now go to the New Testament. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 5. God still acted this way uh, even in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 5, there were two people, a husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira. They sold some property. They promised to give the proceeds of their property to the church. But they made so much money, they thought, wow, we're going to pocket some of this money because the church will never know. And we'll give the rest, which is a lot of money, and we'll give it to the church. And so they go to the, who knows, the evening Vesper service. Uh, in the early church of Jerusalem, and there's Peter, and he's taking the offering as the apostle, and people are going up, giving their money to the apostles at the time of the offering, and Ananias uh, goes up, and he gives his offering, and it's a big hunk of money. And the Holy Spirit revealed to Peter that Ananias was lying. He didn't give all the money that he promised, and he pocketed some of the money for himself. He was being selfish, and he's trying to lie to Peter, an apostle, and to Almighty God. And Peter rebuked him on the spot in the middle of the church service in front of everybody, and Ananias fell over dead. And the ushers came, grabbed him by the ankles, and dragged him out of the service. And then his wife came in a little later, Sapphira, and same thing happened to her. She lied, boom, she fell over dead at church. And you're like, wow, that is harsh. Never seen anything like that. What in the, I thought God was a loving God. But God did these things in the Old Testament, New Testament, because God is a loving God, and God is also a very holy God who hates sin and must deal with it. Now, those are exceptional instances. God is not routinely doing this in churches. God has entrusted discipline to people and uh, the church now to implement discipline for the most part. We need to do it and act on his behalf. We aren't going around killing people, but we are reprimanding them and rebuking them for their sin, calling them to repentance and, if necessary, isolating them, kind of like putting them in the corner until they behave and are convicted. And so that's where we are in 1 Corinthians 5. So let's go ahead and look at the need for church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5. Now, church discipline, just by nature of the topic, can be very confusing, becomes very convoluted. Some churches don't do it at all, which is gross disobedience. Some churches do it too much and abuse it and become uh, abusive and controlling or legalistic or pharisaical. There needs to be a biblical balance. And we need to take all that Scripture has to say about it and do it in a biblical fashion. So just a couple of points that uh, Paul makes from these verses. Point number one, back in 1 Corinthians 5. When you're doing church discipline as a body, corporately, 
the prohibition. Number one, don't boycott unbelievers. Don't boycott unbelievers. Or don't discipline unbelievers in the same way you would discipline a believer or church member. And this is verses 9 and 10. Listen to what Paul says. Well, I wrote you in a previous letter that was written before 1 Corinthians. So there was an earlier letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians that we don't have. But in that letter, Paul told them that they were not to associate with immoral people. That's what he said. Do not associate with immoral people. The Corinthians thought he meant, or some of them did, oh, so anybody that's immoral, we don't associate with whatsoever. So the Corinthians were thinking, well, the world in Corinth and the city and unbelievers are all immoral people. Therefore, we won't associate with unbelievers in our city and in our culture. And so they implemented that command in a wrong way. And so basically they separated themselves totally, some of them, from unbelievers in the society or wherever they went. They became like Pharisees. The Pharisees thought Gentiles had the cooties. You couldn't even touch a Gentile. You couldn't even step on his property or his land. Uh, You don't even go near him. You don't talk to them. You're not courteous to them. You're not friendly. You don't engage whatsoever to any degree at any level. This is kind of what some of the Corinthians were thinking. Is this what Paul meant? And Paul realized, no, you totally misunderstood what I said. I did say don't uh, intermingle with the immoral people, but I wasn't talking about unbelievers. I was talking about people in the church who profess to be Christians. If there are people in your church who continue in patterns of sin and they become unrepentant and they don't submit to the authority of Scripture and the call of the church to turn from their sin, then you need to disassociate yourself from those people. You need to isolate yourself from those people. You need to remove those people. Those are professing Christians. I didn't tell you to disassociate yourself from unbelievers. That's the exact opposite thing you're supposed to be doing. You need to go out into the world and infiltrate the world and mingle and interface with unbelievers despite their sin. So he said, I wrote you in my earlier letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. So you need to get back in there in society and uh, start befriending people who aren't Christians and being courteous and kind to people who are not believers, who have a different lifestyle and worldview than you do. Get to know them, establish relationships. We'll see about this and have a ministry to those people. Not isolate and ostracize unbelievers. I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindle. And then he specifically defines the lifestyles of unbelievers, that they are routinely covetous, they, they are greedy, they just want to get rich, they want people's money, uh, they are predators for other people's property and money, they're swindlers, they're liars, uh, they try to cheat all the time and constantly. This goes on routinely in the unsaved world. This is normal behavior as far as the world is concerned. Everybody cheats on their taxes. You hear it all the time. Everybody does it. That's their ethic. Their ethic is corrupt. And Paul knows that. This is not change. This is human nature. This hasn't, we haven't changed an iota in 2,000 years. So this speaks of American culture that is unsafe. Uh, it is covetous, it, uh, full of swindlers, idolaters, who worship anything and everything other than the true one God and Jesus Christ, the God-man. Uh, boy, if, I, if my command was that you not interface and interact and talk to and associate with unbelievers, then you would have to go out of the world. Paul is being sarcastic. Do you know what that would take you, that command? Literally out of this world. You would have to be dead and go to heaven to fulfill that command. If I was telling you to disassociate or boycott unbelievers, I am not asking you to boycott unbelievers, and that's why I put here, Paul is saying, 
uh, do not boycott unbelievers. That is not the right way to think. That is not what Jesus did. Thinking in the Gospel of Luke, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus is going out and calling disciples, and there's a tax collector who's a traitor to his people. Uh, He's probably dishonest and bilking money off the top as it is. So he's a liar. He's a traitor. His name is Levi, also known as Matthew. And Jesus approaches him and says, hey, Levi, follow me. And Levi says, oh, okay. And Levi gets up and follows Jesus and becomes a disciple. And shortly thereafter, Levi, the compromised, worldly, sinful, lying, money-grubbing tax collector, invites all of his like-minded friends to have a party and a dinner and invite Jesus as their guest. So Levi has this banquet with all these other money-grubbing, lying, sinful, wicked, evil people. And Jesus, get this, actually came to the dinner. And he actually ate their food. And I guarantee you he was kind and patient with them and spoke truth to them and sat down with them and interfaced with them. And the Pharisees heard about it and the Pharisees actually observed it and saw it. And the Pharisees were aghast and they rebuked the disciples of Jesus saying, I cannot believe that your master eats with sinners. Your master spends time with sinners and unbelievers. And Jesus says, yeah, that's right. I do. As a matter of fact, I have been, the Son of Man came to seek and to save sinners. The righteous, they don't need a physician. The unrighteous do, and that's why I came, to seek and to save sinners. Jesus did not boycott unbelievers, so we shouldn't either. The first time I ever was confronted with Christian boycotting was when I was a brand new Christian in college, I think it was my sophomore year. I've been saved hardly a year. Zealous. I want to do whatever the Bible says. And I was with a group of guys that were kind of discipling me. Other zealous, young, uh, very ignorant and immature Christian men with a lot of energy, who college students who loved God and loved the Bible. And one of them got in his idea and found out that uh, those who catered the food at this college weren't unbelievers and weren't Christians. As a matter of fact, get this, those, the company that catered the food to my college, they were a Mormon company. And therefore, all the food they served was evil. And we cannot, as Christians, in good conscience, eat this food that they serve in our cafeteria at this Christian college. We must boycott them. And then the guy started lining up behind him. And, I'm, and there's about seven of us in this group. And I'm thinking, well, man, I really like their rambling root beer. And, and the, their brownies they have for dessert every day. Uh, I had a real dilemma on my hands. And I was not an experienced Christian, but I knew, man, th- that just does not sound right. And I want my brownie. So I, I turned my back on the crowd and said, dude, I can't do it. I am not going to boycott the cafeteria. Well, I spent a lot of money on tuition at this private school. This was not the master's college, by the way. It was another Christian school. Uh, but anyway, that's when I was introduced to And I was totally oblivious to it. That, and for the rest of my life, I would see that there would be causes and times where Christians come along and wave the sign and we need to boycott such and such an organization and this television show or these people because of whatever reason. And so... I concluded and then uh, had a piece about it that "Mm, I don't think I'm supposed to boycott this catering company. Plus, the guy that serves the brownies, he's a really nice guy. His name's Fred, and I'm getting to talk to him, and I don't know if, I don't think he's a Mormon. I don't think he has a religion. And so, Scripture affirms that. Christian, we are not called to go out and boycott unbelievers for those kinds of causes. That is wrong. And we see Christian groups do it all the time. Um, And there's a balance here. We're not supposed to go and associate with unbelievers and take on their lifestyle. We are supposed to be like Jesus, who went and spent time with unbelievers, but he had boundaries. And you know what? He defined the boundaries. There's a good rule for you, or for me. 
the Christian defines the boundaries on what basis we are going to interact and have fellowship. And our boundaries are going to be defined by Scripture. And I'm not going to compromise Scripture as I interface and interact and socialize or eat with an unbeliever or get involved in their life to whatever degree. It has to be defined and driven by Scripture. Unbelievers don't have that worldview. They can't define the boundaries for us. We have to define it for them. So we have to mandate what the dictates are as we interact with unbelievers. But we must infiltrate the world and interact with unbelievers. We shouldn't be boycotting people who are not Christians. And like Paul said, if you literally try to be consistent in boycotting unbelievers, and if you're trying to be consistent about that, you literally would have to die and go to heaven because you couldn't live in this world practically. Think about it. Have you purchased gas for your car lately? Uh, I guarantee that the gas station where you bought your gas probably was not owned by a born-again Bible-believing Christian. Probably some pagan dude who probably likes a lot of money. And most of the people that probably work there at the gas station are probably unbelievers from Satanists to agnostics to Wiccans to uh, Mormons to unsaved Methodists and Baptists. And so this idea that we're going to boycott everything that is not hallowed or sanctified is just totally unrealistic because we buy gas from unbelievers all the time. And we, we value and enjoy their service to us. You have an iPhone? Well, it's probably a bunch of pagan dudes that made this thing that you find very helpful and you're on 25 hours out of the day. And you haven't thought twice about, well, actually, who made this? Who provided this service? Probably unbelievers, and we use it all the time. Or have you been to the doctor lately or the hospital that's run by, for the most part, unbelievers? You gone shopping lately at Safeway or supermarket owned by unbelievers or run by unbelievers, the managers, unbelievers, for the most part, the majority of them, and the people that work there have religions across the board, many of them religions that are totally contrary to what your personal beliefs are. And that's, that's why Paul said it is ridiculous to think that you can disassociate yourself from, um, from unbelievers in this world. You can't. That's why Jesus said in, in John 17, very important, Jesus prayed for all of us. And he said, I pray for my disciples. And I, I pray, Father, that you don't remove them from the world. They are in the world as I was in the world. Father, I pray that you protect them while they are in the world. They are in the world, and later he said, but they are not of the world. That's the answer. We are in the world. We are not of the world. We need to maintain our own pure counterculture as we live in the culture in which we are surrounded by. And we can't compromise our testimony. We have to say no to sin. We have to divine the boundaries. And we have to infiltrate the world and interact with unbelievers. So don't boycott unbelievers. The Corinthians were deceived here and had wrong-headed thinking. And I have to deal with this a lot as I have over the years. Just people come up and, especially when you work at a church, you're a pastor at a church or an elder at a church, and Christians have what they think is a good cause. Okay, here we need to, we need to boycott Disney because uh, Disney's having a, a gay day. Really? Uh, I'm not going to boycott Disney. I don't, I don't think we can. I don't think we should. I don't think it's our right. Disney's a bunch of unbelievers. What do you expect? They're just doing what they do. That's not our call. Don't boycott unbelievers. You don't have to tolerate it. You don't have to like it. You don't have to participate. You don't have to go there. You can refrain personally in, in good conscience as a Christian. You can decide, I'm not going to go to Disney. That's fine. But you can't force that on other Christians. You can't say this is a mandate from God. But if it's a matter of conscience, you need to honor your conscience as a Christian. I will not support that. But then I'm saying, okay, to be consistent in that, you're going to have a really hard time in every other area of your life. 
because you're going to be supporting the gay cause in just about every other area of your life somewhere down the, the line. So we don't accept the sin, but we don't boycott formally unbelief. John Calvin, of all his greatest, he's probably one of the greatest Bible teachers in the history of the church, one of the greatest scholars and Bible expositors. But he became a very influential leader in Geneva for a long period of time, for a couple of decades. And one thing, place where he stepped over the line, and this is clear in history, is where he tried to boycott unbelievers in that city. And he tried to mandate through the civil government, even though he was not a, a formal citizen, but he was very influential, uh, biblical laws and foisting them illegitimately on the citizenry, many of whom were not saved. That was not, that was not right. If you take Jesus' name in vain, you're going to jail for two weeks. No. If you take Jesus' name in vain, you can speak out and rebuke it as sin and call that person to repentance, but you can't throw them in jail. But he used the law illegitimately at times. That's where he struggled by illegitimately boycotting unbelievers. Um, so we all have our weaknesses. That's just something to learn from from history. Well, who should we boycott? That's point number two, the admonition. Don't boycott unbelievers, but we should boycott somebody, and that's uh, we should boycott unrepentant professing Christians. Uh, it should be. I put unrepentant Christians, but really it's unrepentant professing Christians because we don't know ultimately if uh, someone who is in sin in the church who professes to be a Christian, we don't know ultimately where their heart's at if they're truly born again. They might not be. Only God knows. And the church discipline process, one of the goals of it is to expose the heart of that sinner, to reveal it, to make it seen by the fruits of their life, whether they have disdain for God's authority or whether they will submit to God's authority in the end and reveal their true character, whether they're a believer or unbeliever. That's what the discipline process does. But we should boycott unrepentant Christians, either on an individual basis, one at a time as we confront the sinner, and then if you go through the steps of church discipline and they continue to be unrepentant, then the three of you should boycott that unrepentant sinner after first you confront the sinner, they don't listen. This is Matthew 18. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. That's Luke 17.3. But in Matthew 18, Jesus says, here's the discipline process. There's a professing believer. They are in sin. You know about it. You go confront them in private. Call them to repentance. If he does not hear you, if they don't listen, if they don't repent, then you go get one or two others. The three of you go and you confront the sinner of their sin. If he does not listen to you, if they do not repent, if they are not softened, maybe even after two, five, seven times, then you go back, you tell it to the church at a minimum that is the leadership of the church. Then the leadership gets involved of the scenario. And then they tell it to the whole body and then the entire church goes and confronts the sinner and calls them to the repentance. And then Jesus says, if they do not listen to the church, then you go to the next step. And they're on the brink now of being kicked out of the church, of being isolated from the fellowship. And then being removed from the body of Christ. And then even being labeled that we have come three times to confront you of your sin. You haven't moved an ounce. You've just hardened your heart all the more. And so more and more it looks like you are an unbeliever. Unwilling to submit to God's truth and God's people. Which is the character of an unbeliever. And that's why Jesus said if they do get to step four, then you treat them like an unbeliever. If they are acting like an unbeliever, treat them as such. And that's what he meant when he said treat them as a tax collector or as a Gentile. And so that means, okay, now I cannot fellowship with you as I would another brother in Christ. 
I can't have the Lord's table in communion with you. I can't worship with you. I can't sing praises to God with you because you're not a believer. You're acting like an unbeliever, and I will treat you as such unless, of course, that person repents. And so you literally remove them from the fellowship of the intimacy of the church. And that's what Paul is saying here. So he's moving quickly to step four with this sinner. So who do we boycott? Well, we boycott unrepentant, professing Christians. Look at verse 11. But actually, I wrote to you. When I wrote to you in that first letter, here's what I meant. You're not to associate with any so-called brother. That's a professing Christian, whether it's a male or a female. Do not associate with them. That's a very strong and specific compound word, associate with. It means to have intimate fellowship and communion with, sitting down over a meal, developing and cultivating a very personal, intimate relationship with that person as you would a, a fellow believer that you know and love and are endeared to and you spend much time with them. That's what that word, that word is loaded and associate in our English Bible. Actually, I wrote you not to associate with uh, any professing believer if he is immoral. Okay, that's sexual sin, porneia. But that's not the only sin that requires isolation and refraining from. Because he lists several sins. Uh, And he, he lists several sins in verse 10. The covetous, the swindlers, the idolaters. And then he lists more sins in addition to sexual sin. If the professing believer is immoral sexually, or get this, if the professing believer is a covetous person, Greedy for money, taking advantage of other people uh, routinely in the church. Wow, really? That kind of sin needs to be rebuked? Yes. Or he's an idolater or a reviler, the way they talk with total, utter disrespect continually to the authorities in their life. That person is to be rebuked soundly and then isolated if they continue in their behavior. A reviler, that's just the way they talk. Or a drunkard, they just keep getting drunk and and refuse to repent from it. Or a swindler, taking advantage of people financially and in other ways. Don't associate with them. Then he says this, not even to eat with such a one. Don't even invite them into your home for a meal. I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's the most influential person in your church. I don't care if it's the associate pastor or the senior pastor. I don't care if it's one of the elders. I don't care if it's the person that provides Uh, their home for the Bible studies and all the youth events. It doesn't matter who it is. I don't care if this person is intimidating to everybody else in the church. They're a mover and shaker. They founded the church. They've been a member for 30 years. It doesn't matter. Not even to eat with such a one. Do not associate with them. Do not have them in your house. Don't eat a meal with them. Don't have fellowship with them. Cut it off. Cut it off. And you need to clearly communicate why you are cutting off so that they know. And God will use that as a weight of his judgment to bring about Hopefully, repentance of sin. So I want you to look at, uh, go to Deuteronomy chapter 19. And we're going to look at two passages in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 19 and then Deuteronomy 21. So actually, throughout Deuteronomy, starting in like chapter 13 all the way to the end of the book, about five or six times, uh, God tells Moses, okay, deal with this sin, deal with it head on. If they keep doing this in your community, then you need to take action. And the phrase he keeps using, starting in Deuteronomy 13, is, is to remove that person from your midst. Remove that person from your midst. Remove that person from your midst for various sins. So in Deuteronomy 19, here's an example. In verse 16, if a malicious witness rises up 
against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing. So somebody in your congregation makes false accusations towards another saint or believer. And they persist in this gossip, if you will, behind the person's back. They're, they're a historical revisionist about what actually happened. And they're perpetuating the story to other people. And they're not silencing after being told to be silent. And they're not recanting. And they're not admitting they're wrong. And they just keep persisting in this. Then it says, verse 18, then the judges need to investigate this thoroughly. And if they're found to be lying and they refuse to repent, verse 19, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. Isolate him. Remove him from the community. But that, the phrase I want you to see is, thus you shall purge the evil from among you. That's repeated about six times in Deuteronomy. Most of the time, the way the purging was done was with the death penalty. One of them was hang them on a tree. Another one was stone them to death and thus purge the evil from among you. The idea is to get rid of that sin, that sinner. Isolate that sinner. Remove that sinner. Do not expose that sinner to other believers. They will poison them. And they will blur the distinction between believer and unbeliever. And you will blur your testimony to a watching, unbelieving world. And you will also disgrace the holiness and the glory of God and His character which is at stake here. Because you're supposed to represent God on earth as believers. Go to the next one. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 21. And look at the nature of the sin. It's not gross immorality. It's not murder in this case. It's 21 verse 18. If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son or daughter, child, who will not obey his father or his mother, and then the mother, mother and father chastise the child, and the child refuses to listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him. That word is used to arrest them, literally. Bring him out to the elders of the city in Israel at the gateway of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of the city, this child of ours is stubborn and rebellious. This child won't obey us. This child is a glutton. This child is a drunkard. This is an older child. Still under the influence and authority of the parents, though. Verse 21. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. We hear that today in our... In our society, we are aghast and taken back by that. Wow, that what in the world? That's not a loving God. That isn't supposed to be our view of children. No, actually, this is the proper view to have of sin, of how horrible sin is, and also it's the proper view of a holy God and His true standard, which for us has been watered down continually by the culture in which we live with all of our compromise. This should shake our sensibilities. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death so that you shall remove the evil from your midst. So there's that phrase again that's used six times in Deuteronomy. Purge the evil from among you. Remove the evil from your midst. Get rid of it. Get it out of the way. Isolate it. Going back to 1 Corinthians 5. This is the exact same phrase that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 5 at the end of the passage. He quotes from Deuteronomy using this refrain that he got out of Moses' writings. 
Go back to verse 11. Actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 and following, Paul reiterated that truth. Do not have dinner with them. Do not associate with them. Don't invite them to your house. Don't go to their house for holidays. I don't care if it is a family member. But if they are a professing Christian, they've been called to repentance, they know what the truth says and what Scripture says, and they refuse to repent and turn, then that's when they are to be ostracized, isolated, removed from the midst of fellowship of, the, of believers. Now, if you're listening to all this thinking, man, maybe some of you are thinking this, I've never heard this before. Really? Is this in the Bible? This seems like really harsh. Or maybe you're thinking, uh, I have heard this before, but not in this kind of detail or from this perspective. Or maybe you've heard it before and you're thinking, this would really be hard for me to do. I don't know if I believe it or agree with it. Or maybe you're hearing it and you're thinking, yeah, this is what the Word of God says clearly and we need to do this, but wow, I, I really struggle with doing this. This would be a real challenge for me to do. I can identify with all of those. I've gone through different phases in my life. I know it's true. It's what Scripture says. I'm in a position where I have to do this routinely. As a dad in a home with multiple children and as a pastor of a church with, that has about 200 people, church discipline is constant. It is continual. It never stops. If it's even just step one, it never stops. So we need to take this to heart. Um, I'm, I'm going to finish this actually next week. Because, actually, I think at the end I want to provide a little bit of time for maybe some Q&A to apply this to our personal lives. Or maybe you've got a dilemma or a situation in your life that you're like not quite sure. How does this fit? Do we discipline? To this? How, what kind of action do we take? I'm not quite sure. But I do want to close with this. Uh, and these were reasons I thought of that Christians don't follow through on church discipline. Reasons that, and you're not going to be able to write them down, there's too many. But here are reasons that I see routinely that I've seen in my own life, that I've seen in churches, that I've seen other pastors cave into. I actually worked at a church. We tried to, I was an elder there. We tried to implement church discipline once, and the leadership decided we're not doing that again, and they made a decree, we are never doing church discipline again in this church. And then I thought, okay, I better start sending resumes out. And I did, and left. Couldn't, that's a compromised church. Reasons Christians don't follow through on church discipline at any level. They think it's not loving. 100 people surveyed, number one answer. Uh, they think it's not nice. Did you know that the Bible never calls us to be nice to anybody? It does call us to be kind, courteous. Nice is such a shallow American word. Uh, some people think church discipline is not like Jesus. Well, Jesus wouldn't do that. Yeah, he would and did and mandated it. Uh, Another main reason people don't do church discipline is out of fear, what others will think, how the sinner will react, what the consequences may or may not be. Uh, many Christians refuse to do church discipline because they lack courage, or maybe they are ignorant. Maybe they've had bad examples of church discipline in the past where it was done illegitimately, and maybe a congregant was manipulated or spiritually abused. So they have a bad taste in their mouth from bad experiences. Many Christians simply, they just don't think it'll work. Uh, you can't discipline my uh, dad. I, I know my dad. It, it's not going to work. You can talk to him all you want, bring three people, bring ten. <laughs> it ain't going to work. He's going to change. It doesn't matter. 
Jesus knows they're not going to listen. That's why he said, if they don't listen, if they don't listen, if they don't listen, three times. No, it'll work. If we do it the right way. Uh, God will get the response he desires. Um, some people think, they don't think long term, they're just short They're just concerned about now. The reaction now instead of thinking long term. Wow, this could change that sinner for life. In 15, 20 years from now, that sinner will be a glorious saint because they went through the hard discipline process. So we need to think long term. Uh, some people don't do it because they lack faith. They just don't trust God at His Word. Some people don't do it because they think they know better. Well, I don't want to do that, but let's do an alternative that I came up with. No, you, you, you don't call the shots. I don't call the shots about church discipline. This is God's church. We do it His way. It's Jesus' church. Uh, some people are just downright unrealistic and idealistic about people. They don't think, well, people aren't that bad. They don't need to be chastised and disciplined like this. They have a faulty view of sin and its danger. Uh, some people just have the current worldview of the world right now is that we need to accept and tolerate people. Just need to tolerate it. Uh, some people don't think about God's reputation in the process. They just think about how the sinner might react when, no, God's reputation is at stake here in the community and the unbelieving world is watching. Uh, some people don't think about the protection of the local body and the group that are being infected by the unrepentant sinner. And then finally, sometimes they consider too much the reputation of the sinner, that it's an influential person, um, they're intimidating, uh, it's a family member, uh, it's one of our offspring or children, we could never do that, uh, it's a guy on staff of the church, it's a lady on staff, or whatever it is, and they put too much emphasis on who the person is instead of the process God has laid out. So be praying about this, and also be thinking about maybe questions you might have Either you can shoot me through an email or well, we could ask next week and then spend maybe the last 10 minutes of next week uh, answering some of these shortly and concisely uh, certain scenarios and asking for God's help. We need His wisdom to implement church discipline in a way that honors Him and preserves, really, the dignity of the sinner and the local body. All for God's glory. With that, let's go ahead and pray and then we'll go uh, to lunch. Father, we thank You for this day and our time of fellowship together. God, we pray continually that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher, the one who illuminates truth for us. Father, uh, we know this subject is very difficult. It, it goes against common sense for us. It goes against our natural sensibilities. We have sin living in us as Christians even. We all battle with sin. We all need the discipline process at some level seems like continually, Lord, because we are so wayward when we are left to ourselves. God, through your Holy Spirit, guide us and protect us and keep us from sin. And Father, thank you so much for forgiving our sin. For those of us who have put faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to die for sinners, to die in their place, to seek and to save them. And you've done that for us. And we rejoice in that. We celebrate in the glory of forgiveness. God, help us uh, as we deal with sinners, starting with ourselves and those all around us, that we might deal with them in a way that pleases and honors you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.